All right. Well, welcome everyone. This is Ben and Cynthia Bailey, and <laughs> and Ben's continuing to play with okay. the gadgets on our soundboard. Okay. Well, we have this little pad with sound effects, and oh um, one of the most important things for the long-term <laughs> success of this podcast and maybe our marriage is that we have to pick out the appropriate intro song and so this little <laughs> sound effects box it, they they came with the intro so this is the default intro so i'm gonna play it for you okay. you tell me what you think uh, you're crazy uh -huh. oh my no, no give it a chance no uh, yep. uh -huh. All yeah. right. Uh, I mean, Everybody has to pour in their feedback on these songs. Everyone put in their <laughs> intro uh, <laughs> suggestion because that's not it. So you don't like the default one? <laughs> no. It's got, it's got kind of an in, like early 90s totally, feel to it. Sounds like It's totally saved by the yeah, bell. Yeah, sounds like saved by the bell. <laughs> All right, well, here's another option. So here's option number two. And this song is currently the current craze sweeping Laureate Park Elementary <laughs> School. <laughs> so you tell me. Could oh this goodness. be it? Mm. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna ask my mom and dad for Joe. I'm gonna run until I can't no more. This is embarrassing. I'm gonna ask my auntie oh, and no, uncle Joe. I'm gonna <laughs> run until I can't no more. I got my shoes laced up so oh, tight. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's oh, it. my word. I've heard that song enough for the past two weeks to last me a lifetime. So what is that? What is that song? Okay, ladies and gentlemen, that is the song that I wrote for the <laughs> Laurie Park Elementary Fun Run. And we sung it for the pep rally and then again for the fun run on Friday. It was a lot of fun, but... Oh, it's amazing. It's amazing. But that might not work either. So we'll, we'll keep searching, but, but we will find... that is not the one for the podcast. <laughs> we will find our, our jam. Okay. So we are moving into Genesis chapter 12 and going to look at Genesis 12 through 15. And we're moving in for the next two weeks, going to be talking about Abraham. Mm -hmm. All right. So, Ben, we're going to be looking at a really large chunk of Genesis over the next couple of weeks. We're covering Genesis 12 through 25. So it's a large passage. So um, just kind of unpack what we're going to be studying here. Yeah. So. As you read through this, I would encourage you to read through it as a chunk to try and get the whole story of Abraham in one sweep. And a good way to think about it structurally, one of the first steps to do is, all right, what's the structure? How does it fit together? How, how are the pieces tied together? And chapter 12 through 14 is a narrative block. 15 is the key chapter where the covenant with Abraham gets ratified. And then 16 through 25 is Abraham living in the light of that covenant. So a, a kind of conceptually a way to think about it, it's almost like 12 through 14 are when God and Abraham are, are dating. So they're courting. They're courting. Betrothed. Betrothed. They're engaged. So <laughs> chapter 12 is the engagement. Chapter 15 is the ratification of the covenant, the covenant ceremony where it gets established, the marriage. So that's mm -hmm. the marriage ceremony. And then 16 through 25 is how then do we live in light of that relationship? So this relationship has been formalized. You have committed to be my God. I have committed to be your people. And then now how do we live? I am yours. You are mine. How do we live in the light of that 16 through 25? Mm -hmm. So today we're going to look at 12 through 15. And we're going to key in on the first couple of verses in 12 and then chapter 15. So let's start at the very beginning. 
a very good place to start. So let's start the beginning yes. of 12. So the beginning is um, a great place to start. All right. All right. So you said that Genesis 12 was like the engagement. So how is it like an engagement? So let's look at one through three and we'll key in on some of the key concepts. So you read verses one through three for us. Okay. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So here, there's two key dynamics here. And so the first thing is notice the promises, all the promises. So the Lord initiates, the Lord comes to Abram. The Lord says, the Lord gives him a call to go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to go to the land that I'm going to show you. And then did you hear, you kind of have to feel all of the I wills. Mm -hmm. I will show you. I will make you. I will bless you. I will bless. I will curse. You shall be blessed. These kind of, This is what I'm going to do, these great promises mm -hmm. that he's going to make to him. But in that, there's also imperatives, commands. Here's what I'm going to do. Now, here's your responsibility. Responsibility mm -hmm. number one is to go. You're going to have to go to where I'm going to show you. You have to let me lead you. Mm -hmm. And then it's it doesn't quite come through in the English translations. We can kind of kind of miss it. But one of the key verses is in verse 2. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Mm -hmm. That has almost a passive connotation, but it, it's actually an imperative. It's a command. So you could literally translate it, I will make your name great. Now, be a blessing. Mm -hmm. He's commanding him. So mm -hmm. that's the part. So right now they're entering into this promise that has some obligations. And the mm -hmm. obligations is for Abraham to go and to bless as he as he is going. Mm -hmm. So um, the relationship is beginning. And so now Abraham is going to have to um, walk by faith. And as you go through the rest of chapter 12, all the way through the end of 14, you're going to see very key, significant moments and elements of what does it mean to walk by faith. So in 12.4, Abraham, he goes. It says, so Abraham went. That's an act of faith. He's following. He's, he's leaving. He's going. And then in verses 4 through 6, he walks through the whole breadth of the promised land. And then in verse 7, the Lord appears to him again and reiterates his promise, the promise of offspring to give to this land. Now, did you notice what are the key things that God promises him to do? What does he promise to give him? Children. So he's going to give him children. So that's one of the key, his offspring. Mm -hmm. And then wrapped up in that promise, not just offspring, it's going to be a nation. So not just a small nuclear family, but a whole nation's going to come. Mm -hmm. I really think, because I see all things in threes, but there's a <laughs> threefold promise, blessing here is the blessing of nation, people, a people. Mm -hmm. And then notice what else you see, the promise. Land. Land. So there's going to be land. And then the final one is that you're going to be blessed. I'm going to be with you and you will be a blessing uh, to the nations. So it's, it's offspring, nation, people. It's people. It's place. It's a, a land. And so people, place, and then blessing, we need some way to say that that starts with a P for rhetorical balance, <laughs> but it's people, a place, and then 
I can't think of it on top of my head. Prosperous, maybe. Prosperous. Good, <laughs> good. You're learning. You're learning. Very good. So, um, blessing. Um, that <laughs> so would be a property, people, and provision. Oh, that could work. That could work. We'll, we'll work on that. Okay, we're working. Um, all right, now look in verse 7. The Lord appears to Abraham again, Abram at this point, sorry, mm-hmm. as he's he's going through the the length and the breadth of the land, walking through it, and the Lord appears to him again and reiterates his promise in verse 7. And then notice what Abraham, do, Abram, <laughs> Abram does <laughs> in uh, verse 7. He builds an altar to the Lord. Yeah, he builds an altar to the Lord who appeared to him. So this is interesting. And then he does again in verse 8. He goes uh, east to Ai, and he builds an altar to the Lord, and he calls upon the name of the Lord. As he's traveling, he's building altars. Mm. And that is something that's very significant because part of part of Abraham's role, his family's role, the way they are a blessing is they create places of worship. They build altars. It's interesting that he builds an altar. Why? How does he even know... Yeah, it's, to do that. Yeah, it is interesting. It kind of comes out of nowhere, and who teaches him to do that, or he needs to do that, or mm-hmm. you actually have seen it all throughout Genesis that there's an altar, there's sacrifice. So altar is significant because it's the place of sacrifice, and sacrifice even from the very beginning is in essence the ticket back into the presence. Mm-hmm. It's the place of worship, and you have it Cain and Abel. Or actually, in the garden, they they know to make themselves coverings to cover, and then God makes them coverings. Then you have, in Genesis 4, Cain and Abel, and the reason why they have their brotherly spat, I mean, that's the first worship wars. Mm-hmm. Um, Abel's sacrifice is acceptable to God, and Cain's is not. So they somehow they know um, that you have to bring an, a sacrifice to, to worship to, for presence. Mm-hmm. And then you have Noah, you have here. Um, it's really... An, a great reading exercise would be to read through Genesis and just notice every time who builds an altar, where, and why. Mm-hmm. You can see it all throughout there. They, um, part of the the key to the promised land is it's been filled with Canaanite idolatry, and the way the people of God are bringing blessings to the nations is they fill it with God-honoring worship. Mm-hmm. And so it's at the very heart because the, the altar, the sacrifice, is the key to the presence the only way you can get back into the presence is through the sacrifice. The shedding mm-hmm. of blood is necessary. There has to be a substitutionary sacrifice to get you back into the presence. Mm-hmm. And so he's, um, how much he knows of all of that, we don't know. How did mm-hmm. he know how to build it? Um, it'll get spelled out more for the Israelites in Leviticus. But from the very beginning, there, there's sacrifice. And something else I'm noticing is that the, these altars must have been acceptable to God because we've seen already that people have attempted to build altars like the Tower of Babel and they were not acceptable to God. Right, right. And Cain's Cain's worship was not. So Mm -hmm. there is worship that's acceptable and there's worship that's not. Mm -hmm. And it's very important to wrestle. That's a key thing that God gets to determine how he is to be approached Mm -hmm. and how he's to be worshipped. And notice the pieces here because there's three key pieces. There's the Lord appears and speaks. So you have the Lord and his word. You have the sacrifice. Um, and then you have, they called on the name of the Lord. You have prayer and praise. Mm-hmm. And those three key pieces, all worship 
that's acceptable throughout all of history has those key pieces. Mm-hmm. The the Lord speaks through his word. We laid a sacrifice of, now under the, the new covenant, our sacrifice is sacrifices of songs and praise, and then we celebrate the Lord's Supper, and then you have prayer where you're calling on the name of the Lord. But those are those are the three key kind of non-negotiable pieces to acceptable worship, and they've been that way ever since Cain and Abel. And would it be right to say that the posture of Abram's heart is right. It's it's humble, it's thankful, it's worshipful because these altars are acceptable to God. He's allowing these altars to to remain. I think so. I'm not, you know, I don't want to try and judge the posture of his heart, but <laughs> I think I yeah, they they are acceptable to him. Mm-hmm. And he puts them in key places all throughout the promised land. Mm-hmm. And so that's a key piece of what it means to live the life of faith. So Abraham is this brilliant illustration and example of what is the life of faith. And for the rest, from chapter 12 all the way to 14, it's going to give you key elements to what is the life of faith. So the next section, you know, Abram and Sarah, they go down to Egypt. um, And here's one of the key tensions. Um, The Lord has promised to be with them. He's promised to bless them and provide for them. And now they're in a situation of famine. Mm -hmm. They're in a situation of fear. And the key question is, can I trust the Lord for my security? I've stepped out. I'm, 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 I'm leaving. And, um, this is, this is a test of security. Mm-hmm. Abram comes across as a, as a fearful man. I mean, he places, um, he puts his, his wife's life at risk cause he's, he's, a, he's mm-hmm. afraid. Mm-hmm. So he wavers a little bit. He does here. And then this, this episode, this scene repeats itself. Mm. And then, um, in 13, you have the element with him and Lot separate, and that's a key element in the life of faith because the question is, you've been given these promises for land. Are you going to grasp them? Are you going to try and f- fulfill those promises in your own way and in your own timing? And this is another thing that will be reiterated later on with Hagar and and Ishmael. And so will he trust or will he grasp? And then you move into the story about Sodom and, uh, or Abraham rescuing Lot. And this is another key life of faith dynamic because one of the dynamics of the life of faith is that by the Spirit of the Lord, the few often defeat the many. And you can actually see that dynamic work itself out all throughout the Bible. So Abraham rescues Lot with the few defeating the many. Moses defeats Egypt, the most powerful empire of the world at the time. And then Joshua and Israel, they defeat all of the Canaanite forces, even though they were numerically and technologically superior. And then you have um, Gideon, the few defeating the many. And then you have the apostles, and um, they frustrate the plans of, of all the power structures over them in the Jerusalem authorities and the Roman authorities. So this uh, chapter 14 is a key theme that um, by the Spirit of the Lord, the few de- defeat the many, but it's not just defeat, it's rescue. So you have um, Abraham is actually, he's acting as a blessing because he's rescuing the the captives. He's freeing the captives. And then it moves to the scene with Melchizedek where, again, worship takes center stage. And so um, there's this dynamic of rescue and then worship, rescue, and then worship. And there's these hints. You know, all of a sudden, part of this worship, you have this strange character. Where does he come from? Who is he? He's lead, He's the king of Salem, and then which eventually becomes Jerusalem. And he worships the Lord God Most High. 
the possessor or maker of heaven and earth. And then part of the worship is bread, wine, and then offering. Three key pieces, bread, wine, offering. And so it's like in this cycle, you have the foundation of what the life of faith is. Will you, how will you respond in times of famine and fear? Who's going to be your security? Um, will you trust the Lord to provide or will you grasp in your own strength and power? Will you um, sacrifice yourself to liberate the, the captives? And then will you worship and honor him in a way that, that is acceptable and brings him appropriate praise? When you said the word rescue, it triggered just something I'm so thankful for and having kind of this bird's eye view of the story us looking in after all of this has happened. And when they were going into Egypt and um, Abram deceiving Pharaoh about, uh, you know, Sarah being his wife and telling him that he's, uh, that she is his sister. It just, it makes me so thankful that that God, even probably Abram didn't even realize it at the time of God sparing him. Um, because if Pharaoh had taken Sarah as his wife and, you know, and killed Abram, then there goes the seed. There goes the promise uh, already. And, you know, hasn't even come to fruition yet. That's just God sparing Abram. And then, of course, God, you know, being true to his promises and keeping um, his word in bringing the line of Jesus through Abram. But anyway, it makes me so thankful. Yeah, it's an amazing reality, and it's so comforting that so often you can see God protecting his people from themselves. So here, God keeps Abraham from the consequences of his own sinful, fearful failures to protect his wife. And I wonder if one of our great shocks or revelations that we'll experience when we get to heaven is we'll just see how much mm-hmm. <laughs> how much God kept us from yeah. the consequences of our own stupid decisions. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like you know it, but you don't know specifically what he is always saving you from. You, It's just one of those remarkable things. But kind of the central section in the Abraham narrative is chapter 15. So that in essence is the marriage ceremony. This is this is when God ratifies the covenant with Abraham. Mm-hmm. So talk about ratify. What does that mean? Yeah, so it's when um, the key verse is in 15 verse 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. That's literally and technically is and the Lord cut, cut a covenant. So when the when the covenant is ratified, it's cut. And that's the same concept we have of almost like when a contract becomes ratified, when it becomes official is when you actually sign it. Okay. So you can have like the marriage um, certificate. Uh, you can do a whole lot of things, but it becomes actually ratified official when it's signed by the minister, signed by the justice of the peace, whoever, and then the two parties. Or like when you buy a house, you know, it becomes official once you sign the contract and put your name on the contract. So this Genesis 15 is the ratification ceremony where the covenant is cut. And it's very important that covenants were cut. And uh, the covenant is is cut and it's in essence signed. Like now you're on the hook. You're, you're official. It's legal. Mm-hmm. What is being ratified in this covenant? The relationship between God and Abraham. That... I will be your God, you will be my people. So in essence, it is a marriage ceremony. That's that's the closest parallel um, we have. But I love the way Genesis chapter 15 is set up because 
so structure again, let's kind of look and get the structure. Mm-hmm. Verses one through eight is Abraham and God's dialogue, mm-hmm. um, almost like the negotiations, the back and forth <laughs> about it. And then nine through 21 is God's answer and then the actual ceremony, the ratification of it. It's such a mixture of odd things and beautiful things. <laughs> I don't know. It's such a, you're cutting animal bodies in half and saying, it is a beautiful mixture, and it's also a beautiful mixture of just strange symbolism and then also faith and doubt, because verses 1 through 8 are really Abraham's questions and his doubt. So verse 1, after these things, the word of the Lord, and it's important to remember these things. All of that goes into the background is important. Mm-hmm. And then notice in verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Abraham. Mm-hmm. Up until this point, it's always, and the, and the Lord said, and the Lord said, but now, and that's a technical phrase that's used all throughout the prophets. The word of the Lord comes. Mm-hmm. The word of the Lord comes. And it's so important because the Lord creates his people through his word. It's the power of the word that creates the people. So here in this formal ceremony where he's first establishing and creating the very father of the faithful, it starts with the word of the Lord coming. But then notice, what does he tell Abram in the very beginning? Two things. Well, three. Fear not. Don't be afraid. So the whole life of faith is learning not to be afraid. And then there's two things he pro- or tells him that he is. He's a shield. And? Reward. <laughs> He's a shield and his reward. So think back to the scene we just encountered 14, Abraham rescues Lot. There's opportunities for Abraham to go into political alliances with Melchizedek, and you go into those to provide protection. Abraham's alone. He has no nation. He has no no king, no, no place, so he needs protection. And the way you... Um, the way you acquire wealth in the ancient world is you either grow it or you take it. <laughs> and the only way he can establish a, a reward, part of the, he's offered all this reward for the rescue of Lot and saving the people, and he turns both of them away. And so the Lord is reminding him that you look to me for your reward and you look to me to be your protection. Mm-hmm. Is this the first time that the word, like God himself, the word has appeared to Abram? Well, no, because he's spoken to him before. So they've had encounters. This actually is the first time where Abraham, or you at least get the dialogue where Abraham is speaking back. Okay. All other places, it's the Lord says to Abraham, and then it says, and then Abraham did. But here Abraham starts to speak back, and it's intriguing. What does, what does he say? He says, what will you give me because I'm childless? So verse 2 is the first time Abraham addresses God, and verse 3 he's saying he's not satisfied with what God has just told him. You've promised to be my reward. you promised to be my shield. But what good is that security? What good is the reward and the riches if I don't have an heir? How can the promise be fulfilled without a child? So it's almost thank you for those things, but those, those aren't enough. How can I know? And so he's actually doubting God's provision and God's promise here in this moment. And then you can see in verse 8, not only is he doubting uh, the Lord's provision and promise, he's, he's doubting himself. I love verse 8. Look what he says. But he says, oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I will possess this? How do I know? I'm, I'm, you, you've promised these things, but I need help. Mm-hmm. 
almost like he's almost he's just really wrestling and seems almost confused. Like, okay, I know you've said these things, but they're just it's not panning out um, how it seems, at least. And I love this picture because God is open to our doubts. I mean, he's not going to leave Abraham there but he doesn't chastise or criticize him for being there. Mm-hmm. And often in more conservative circles, you're not allowed to doubt. You know, the Bible says it, that settles it, and that's it. You're, you're, you're actually not allowed to struggle and wrestle and have doubt. But then the flip side, in many liberal circles, you're not allowed to have any certainty. You can't believe that God said anything, and all we have is doubt. And you actually have neither here. Mm-hmm. Um, the Lord is open to mm-hmm. Abraham's doubt. He engages them. He mm-hmm. enters into them. But mm-hmm. then he provides. He actually gives him one of the most powerful demonstrations that he can have so he can know these things. So is that the covenant ceremony that comes next? Yes, that's what it is. That's what he gives him as his answers for his doubt and his assurance. And as we you look at verse 9, it, it does seem very strange to us, but everyone in the ancient world would have understood this. Mm-hmm. All of them would have understood the dynamics here, what's going on. This is a very popular or very, this is a very common reality that they all would have experienced. So when you think about like, so like when you're reading chapter 14, and it talks about all of these different kings that you can't even pronounce. It's like Barah, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Abdamah. <laughs> and so don't think like king of England, that kind of <laughs> king. I mean, in, in, in this world, there's a king and like Sodom, you know, in the time of King David, even Jerusalem proper was smaller than our neighborhood. In landmass. So our neighborhood's bigger than Jerusalem. Now it was more densely populated, but our neighborhood's still bigger. So think more like a parish than a Yeah, or kingdom. like a neighborhood. So you have mm-hmm. these little, in essence, neighborhoods, and there's the person who's the largest landowner and the most powerful person and largest landowner, in essence, would be the king. Okay. Um, so this goes back to what we saw at Babel with Nimrod, you know, this mighty hunter, the person who can control, <laughs> don't, don't laugh name. at his name. Do not laugh at it. His, his family might be listening. It he's, mighty. I know. he's a warrior. He'll come attack us. <laughs> and then what are we going to have? Uh, still sounds funny. So Mr. Nimrod, if you're listening, that is Cynthia making fun of your name. <laughs> totally. And uh, so he would have been, been the king and the way, so almost think like Downton Abbey. So okay. Lord Grantham is the king of yes. that area. So now we're talking your language. <laughs> okay, got it. Connections made. Connect- okay, so Lord Grantham <laughs> is the king of, I guess it's Downton. Uh-huh. I don't know. Whatever town. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't know my English countryside geography. <laughs> so whatever town that is, and then you would have all of the different little fa- farmers who the dynamic would be the king would then give the land to the people. And so they would be obligations and responsibilities on both sides. So the, in essence, all of the peasants would come up to the king. He, there would be this ceremony. This is what this is. There would be a ceremony where they're going to ratify the covenant, or their gr- agreement with the vassal and the suzerain or the peasants and the, and the king. And the negotiations, the agreement would be, you know, you agree to be my vassals. I will give you the land. You will work it faithfully for me and then give me a certain percentage that, um, you know, basic taxes. And then what I'll provide for you, I provide rain. You know, it's amazing what some of these kings would claim they could provide. But like uh, uh, Pharaoh would, uh, would brag that he's the 
bringer of rain, that he actually makes it rain. And sounds like a modern rap song or something. <laughs> so, so these covenant ceremonies, this, this would not have been the first one that Abraham would have witnessed. No, they would have known of. all of this. And the dynamic would be, I will provide the land, you provide me uh, loyalty. When I call upon you to fight for my wars, you, I provide you protection, all that. But what is fascinating, so you see in... So you see in verse 9, he says, bring me the heifer, bring me the goats, bring me the turtle doves, the young pigeons. Interesting. All of the key animals that will be designated clean in Leviticus 1. Hmm. But you bring me the sacrificial animals. And the way the ceremony works is they would, and you can see it in verse 10. You bring them to me, you cut them in half, and you lay half on one side and half on the other side, and then there's a ceremony. And so in these, in these vassal treaties, these covenant ceremonies, then all of the vassals, the peasants, they then walk through the dismembered pieces of the animals, and what they're saying is we're agreeing that if we don't uphold our end of the bargain, may this happen to me. So we're giving you the right and the authority to cut us to pieces if we don't uphold our end of the bargain. Mm -hmm. All right, so it's all set up in verse 7 through 11, and then now the sun starts to go down, and then there's some unique things here. Mm -hmm. So notice a deep sleep fell on Abram. So it's interesting. Who else has been put in a deep sleep already we've seen in Genesis? Adam. And when was that? When Eve was going to be taken from his rib. Mm -hmm. So when the, the formation of Eve, and then now, but it's not just a deep sleep, it's a dreadful and great darkness now falls upon him. It's not just there, it falls, it comes down, mm -hmm. a dreadful and great darkness. And then the Lord speaks, and then the Lord gives him this tremendous promise from 13 all the way to 16, and he foreshadows the next great covenant with Moses in the Exodus. So all that gets foreshadowed. And then in 17, when the sun has gone down and it was dark, and behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. Mm. So those are, those are the images. And these are, these are really hard words to translate, but they appear again. The similar images appear again in Exodus 3, mm -hmm. when Moses encounters God at the burning bush. Mm -hmm. And they appear again in Exodus 19 at Sinai. That flaming torch is almost like a bolt of lightning that's stuck in the air. Mm -hmm. So it's not like, you know, a torch, you know, a pitchfork with a, you know, a little bitty torch. It's like a bolt of lightning stuck in the air. And then this flaming pot. And what those are, those are symbolic representations of the actual presence of God. This is God's presence. So Abraham knows what a covenant ceremony is all about. Mm -hmm. And he's fully expecting at the proper moment, once we cut all those animals, he's the vassal, he's the peasant, the Lord is the king, and he's fully expecting to walk through those pieces to mm -hmm. say, if I don't keep my end of the bargain, this is what's going to happen to me. You know what never happened in the ancient world? <laughs> A king going through the The kings the never went through the bodies themselves. <laughs> they would never say, if we don't uphold our id, you could cut us to pieces, because that was just <laughs> not part of the deal. Uh -huh. But then here, it's probably the shock of his life, because what actually happens? God is the one to pass through. Yeah, God passes through the pieces. And this is doing so many wonderful things beautiful things. One of the things mm -hmm. it's doing is it's giving this incredible foreshadowing, mm -hmm. um, but it's letting us know of the substitutionary dynamic. So it's placing at the very heart of salvation, 
the idea that God himself will bear the curse for covenant disobedience. Mm. You can see all of these images. You have the darkness, the violence of being cut with the sword, the broken flesh, the accursed death, the abandonment, and then God himself is passing um, through the pieces. This is establishing the necessity for the cross. Mm. So when Jesus talks about the, the Son of Man had to suffer, and he takes him back to the Old Testament, he would have taken him to a place like this. It's one of the reasons all the gospel writers are at pains to show us that when Jesus was crucified, there was a dreadful and deep supernatural darkness mm. descended. Mm. And then you have resonances like in Isaiah 53 where the suffering servant, he's wounded for our transgressions, he's pierced for our iniquities, um, by his stripes we're here. He's cut. He's cut in pieces. Mm. So um, to pay the penalty for the breaking of the covenant. So you have this amazing thing. Abraham has two major doubts. How can I know you will do this? And then how can I know I can do this and keep my end of the bargain? And actually the cross is the answer and the solution to both. God's saying, how can you know I will do it? I will pass through the pieces myself. That's how committed to Mm -hmm. this relationship I am. And then even if you don't, even if you don't uphold your end, I will still pass through the pieces Mm -hmm. to bear the penalty for you Mm -hmm. in your place. That's beautiful. But it is beautiful. It's the, it's, Mm -hmm. it is. um, It's amazing. I love all the correlations. And what Abraham has to learn and what we have to learn is that it's this is the only place where we can find an anchor for our soul. Mm-hmm. All of these things that he promised there to be our shield, this is the only place where we can find safety, find security. This is our great reward. And if we can stand here in this place, stand at the foot of the cross, seeing him doing that for us, then we can be safe and secure. Mm. Everything else is passing away. So here in Genesis 15, you can see Christ is the one who actually fulfills God's obligation to to bear the curse of the penalty. But then you can also see so many other connections with the promise to Abraham that we um, need to trace from chapter 12. Yeah, I mean, it's all throughout Abraham's story. Like Jesus is the offspring promised to Abraham. Jesus is the head of the great nation made up of the disciples of all the nations. Jesus is the king of the nations, and Jesus is the one who has gone to prepare a place for us. So rich, rich, a lot of good stuff here to wrestle with and unpack. So, Thank you for listening, guys. I hope you have a great week. We enjoy discussing Abraham. (laughs) Is this this the only way to sign off? Well, there you have it, folks. Have a great week. One, two, three, four. I hate how often I say this is really significant. I need to say it in such a way where people feel it. This is interesting. Yeah, yeah, that's my. (laughs) That's your phrase. (laughs) That's my phrase.